I would ask if you could please stand as we read this passage of Scripture this morning. Genesis 1 um, through to, uh, to, to Genesis 2, verse 3. It's a, bit, a little bit of a longer passage. If you're not able or not comfortable standing, that's, that's fine if you, if, you, if you need to sit for this. Um, you, can, you can stand in your heart. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to this, their kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed according to, the, to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves in which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, uh, creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. And you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we praise you for your work in creation, for the involvement of of each member of the Trinity in creating this, this glorious world, and Lord, for making us in your image. Yet, Lord, as we We'll read on in Genesis. We see that we know it did not take long for sin to enter into the world. And and Lord, that all of us have been corrupted by that sin. But Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to provide a redeemer. Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Lord, we, we know that you are faithful to your promises, that you have given to us, your people, Lord, we are your elect, the bride of Christ, in whom the promises of Christ rest. And so, Lord, I pray that as we undertake our study of this book of Genesis, Lord, that we will see your faithfulness, and Lord, that by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, we will respond with faith and obedience. Lord, I pray that we would grow in the knowledge of you and in the reflection of our Lord and Savior, for your sake and for the building of your church. Amen. This morning, we're going to be starting at the beginning, at the very beginning. In fact, we're going to start before the beginning. Once upon a time is how fairy tales begin. In fact, every story that has ever been written begins once upon a time. It's, it takes, every story that's ever been written takes place at a particular point of time. Every story that is except this one. Because this story begins before time. This story begins when there was no when. This story begins before the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God was already there. He is the eternal God with no beginning and no end. In fact, Revelation 22, 13, it's almost the end of the Bible. He, he declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Our God is an eternal God. Our God is an unchanging God. And so our God is an ever faithful God. 
Genesis is a book of beginnings. The, the Hebrew title is, is Bereshith, which, which means in the beginning. It follows the, the pattern of, of naming ancient books after their, their first words. So the, the Hebrew title Bereshith is, is an appropriate title. But, but Genesis, the, the, the name by which we know the book, it, it actually comes from, from the, the Greek word Genesis, which means origin. And it's based on, on the book's content. And, and so this title too, both titles are, are appropriate since the book is about the origin of history. In fact, Genesis itself is a history. It's a history of what God is doing in the world, about his faithfulness, especially about his faithfulness to his people. Genesis it teaches us a, a great deal about God's love and God's grace for his people, about his holiness, about his coming kingdom, about his providential governance of, of all things, and it's all for his glory. So then as such, Genesis really informs and governs a Christian worldview. We, we need to seek to conform our, our thinking and, and our, our attitudes to what we find here in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the, the first of, of five books of the Pentateuch, which is sometimes referred to en masse as the law. And so Genesis, as such, it, it does contain some law, and it, it also contains prophecy, and it contains genealogy, but, but Genesis is, again, largely a narrative. It's a story. It, it's a story about, about God and God's people, and it's also a story about the people who have rejected God. Now, given that, that it was written by Moses, as the, the scriptures attest, we saw that earlier in, in John 1, Genesis would have been written around somewhere around 1500 B.C. Now, obviously, Moses wasn't around when the events of Genesis took place. He doesn't come till, to really till sometime, sometime later in the, in the book of Exodus. In fact, nobody was around until the sixth day. So, so, so Moses couldn't have, have been a, a personal eyewitness of, of what he's seen, of what, of what God has done. And, and so we, we have to, to acknowledge that, that, that really a lot of what was seen here was, was, actually, was actually revealed to Moses. Now, it's possible that he did draw, draw on some sources, like the, the patriarchs and, and the probably kept genealogical records that were, were passed on to Moses. But, but we, we need to be very careful here. Because there are scholars who would suggest that, that there are stylic, stylistic differences within the book of Genesis. So you, different, different words um, that are used to describe the same thing and, and different names for God and, and, and even they would believe stories which are repeated to them they, they, they suggest that, that Moses wasn't the author at all that it was actually compiled hundreds of years after Moses by, by a number of, of different authors and, and so, so they deny the, that, that Moses actually wrote Genesis now, we, we, we can acknowledge that, that Moses didn't write all of the Pentateuch. I mean, after all, at the end, the, at the end of Deuteronomy, we read an account of, of Moses' death, and, and obviously he didn't write that. Um, and there were things that, that were, that where it seems that, that, that the Pentateuch was actually updated, and, and, um, and so, so he didn't, clearly he didn't write the, the whole thing. 
But nevertheless, this hypothesis that there's all these, these authors, these, these four authors um, afterwards who, who write, wrote this, is, it, it's really just based on subjectivity. That they're, they're approaching, they're, they're, as they approach the Bible, they're looking at it and, they're, and they're, they're looking at it with a presupposition of denial. And we need to understand that about these, about these, these, uh, these scholars, first of all, is that they deny the inerrancy and, and authority and inspiration of God's word. So we need to get that straight from the, from the first part. But then what they do is they, they approach the Bible and they, they look at things like these stylistic differences, for example, with the, the different names for God. And, and so one is called, one of the, the, the groups is called J, which is, refers to the, the Yahwist. And, and so they, that whenever the word Yahweh is, is used, they say, well, this is, this is J who did this. And, and when the word Elohim is used, then it was the Elohist who did this. And, and so what they're doing is they're, they're, they're imposing their own presuppositions on the Bible. And they're saying, see, therefore it proves that Moses didn't write it. Do you see how illogical that perspective is? They're not actually accounting for, for stylistic differences. And that, that sometimes different names are, are used for God in, in order to, to bring out nuances of his character. So the, the, the more personal Yahweh is, is meant to, is, there's, there's a theological component to the use of that word. And so, so we need to, to acknowledge that, that there's stylistic differences, that there's different, that, the, the, that Moses had different intentions to write, to use different words at different times. And likewise, the way that they describe saying that there's, there's stories that are repeated. So, so for example, uh, Abraham is, is said to have um, twice in Genesis read of, of Abraham lying about his wife, saying that she's his sister. Right? He does it to, he lies to, to Pharaoh, and then he does the same thing to Abimelech. And then you find later on, Isaac does the same thing. And so what, what these liberal scholars are doing, is they, they say, well then, see, that, that must have come from a different source altogether. But again, it's their, their presupposition of doubt. Isn't it just as possible that these things repeated themselves? Isn't, isn't it just as possible that, that Abraham was showing some, some character flaws in, in the fact that he wasn't trusting God's promise and that those, some of those, those character flaws were actually in his son as well? So, so again, these, these, these scholars are, are revealing more about themselves than they are about the Word of God by, in the way that they challenge the Word of God. Thankfully, most uh, conservative scholars have, have rejected um, these, these theories. Derek Kidner says that when we, we study the book of, of Genesis on his own terms, that is, as a living whole, it is not a body to be dissected. The, the impression becomes inescapable that the characters are people of flesh and blood. Its events actual. And the book is itself a unity. So, so in the, the unity of, of Genesis and really of the, the whole Pentateuch, it's, it's really intact. It's, it's really one, one body. Our God is faithful. And so his word is completely trustworthy. Genesis begins with the, the creation of the heavens and the earth, and, and man is the, the crowning pinnacle of that creation. Man and woman made in the image of God as the, the crowning glory of creation. 
But again, here there's, there's a lot of debate as well. There's, there's debate as to whether God created all the world and, and all that's in it in, in six literal days, or whether it took place over millions and millions of years. And we're going to get more into this next week. But a, a lot of this can be attributed to conflicting hermeneutics. And, and the word hermeneutics is basically it's, it's the way we approach, the way we study and interpret the Bible. And so when, when people have these conflicting views, there, there's a, they have a different hermeneutic. They have a different way of approaching the word of God. And so when we, when we see that, that there's this, this element that's taking place, and, and even among some largely conservative scholars, they, they would suggest that this takes place over millions of years. But what's really happening here, this is not fundamentally a clash of hermeneutics. This is really fundamentally a clash of worldview. It's whether we're going to take the word of God at face value, or whether we're going to try to import other, other views and, and try to, to draw our thinking from, from what the world tells us is, is true or isn't true. And it's, it's really only in the last hundred or so, a couple hundred years, not even, where, where, the, where this has really even begun to be, to be challenged and, and, and discussed. And, and, and you, can, you can see from the testimony of Scripture itself, and, and if, you, if you care to look, the evidence of, of, of God's hand in creation far, far outweighs any dubious evidence that, that science, will, so-called science, will give us. We're going to talk a lot more about, about this next week. But we need to acknowledge that the... the, the, the the main point and the main purpose of, of a lot of the, those that would, would try to discount the, the Genesis account of creation, and I wouldn't put, put everybody who's doing this in that, in that camp, but, but for a lot of them, it's actually seeking to undermine the foundations. Because once the foundations are undermined, the, the whole edifice, the whole, the whole building of faith begins to crumble. But friends, the foundation is firm. The foundation of God's word is, is clear and it is reliable. So the, the, the main purpose, again, we have to realize the main purpose of, of Genesis 1 is, is not to give a, a, a detailed account of exactly how God created the world. And, and we acknowledge that's not the main point. But we have to ask the question, did it actually happen? Did it actually happen the way God's word clearly says it happened? And if we if if we if we need if we're gonna gonna deny that, then then at what point are we going to to stop denying what God's word really teaches? What we're really doing when when we draw it into question or call it into question is we're actually again we're we're undermining the very basis of our own faith. So we need to take God's word at face value. We need to take God's word at its word. If we're going to do so, we have to accept that the early chapters of Genesis are an actual, accurate depiction of real events. They're, they faithfully describe God's creation by his omnipotent word. The creation of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, in, in, in his own image. They describe the fall, the, the ubiquitous and subsequent spread of sin, the, the, the global flood, the, the generations of Adam and of Abraham. And, and that's this whole thing is true and it's trustworthy. 
the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself regarded this word as inerrant and these events as factual. It's factual. This is also the case for the, the early church fathers and the, the reformers who, who elaborated and illuminated what the, the meaning of the early chapters of Genesis was. And, and it, they saw it not as a misunderstanding, but, but as a total assent to the truth of Genesis and the unfolding revelation of redemptive history. It's vitally important that we get the foundation right. Nevertheless, people are going to continue to battle over the beginning until the end. Derek Kidner says that there can be scarcely a, another part of Scripture over which there are so many battles, theological, scientific, historical, literary, have been fought over, or so many strong opinions cherished. The, the very fact is a sign of the greatness and power of the book and of the narrow limits of both our factual knowledge and our spiritual grasp. So, so there really is a battle for the beginning. And in the battle for the beginning, really, we're, we're seeing where a lot of the battle is really waged. And that's, that's really why I, I wanted to begin to study Genesis here, here in our church family. And I was initially looking at, at doing um, Genesis 1 to 11 because it's a, it's a, a, a set it's a set of stories that, that really hang together and really deals with a lot of these foundational issues. But as I continued to, to read and, and thought and talk more about it, and Joshua and I discussed it, I realized I can't stop at Genesis 11. I have to keep going all the way through to the end. And, and so, like I said to the kids, we're, we're probably going to be in this together for, for, for at least a year. And so, so I, again, I, I encourage you to, to continue to pray and to continue to read outside of, of Sunday mornings to, to begin to, to prepare yourself to, for what God is, is going to be teaching us from his word. So yes, there is a battle for the beginning. But God's word declares very clearly God's work in creation. That the creation was good. That man started out in innocence, but, but was, was tempted by the, by the serpent. Who deceived Eve into eating the forbidden fruit, and she gave it to her husband, and, and immediately humanity descended into depravity. Idolatry and murder and sexual immorality and, and all forms of wickedness follow suit. But the rest of the story, the rest of the story of Genesis and, and really the rest of the story of the Bible is about God's deliverance of his elect, of his chosen people. And so even though God, who is the, the faithful witness and the righteous judge, even though he, he renders the correct verdict, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6-5. Though, though that was the verdict, and that's still the verdict today, God's redemption shines like a beacon throughout Genesis and throughout the whole Bible. Our God is faithful. The miracle of God's grace is, is immeasurably greater th than what he did in creation. Though, though he created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo out of nothing, he did something infinitely greater in redemption. Our redemption is ex inimicus, from enemies. God didn't just create something out of nothing. He took our rebellious hearts and changed them and made them worshipful hearts in his work of redemption, regeneration. 
So it is in our redemption, in the redemption that we see here in the pages of Genesis and throughout the Bible that we see God's glory shine brightly. So God elected his covenant people in Christ to conquer Satan, Genesis 3.15, and to bless all the families of the earth, Genesis 12.3. Again, our God is faithful. We're going to be talking quite a bit about God's covenant people. Covenant is a word that, that we're going to be hearing repeatedly throughout our study. Covenant is a, a, a formal and binding agreement between two parties with, with consequent blessings and obligations. And, and covenant word is, is a very important, covenant is, is a very important word in the Bible. It's, it's used 337 times, 52 times in Genesis alone. And covenant is essentially here the way, the way God deals with his people. And when you look at your Bible, and when you look specifically at Genesis, you can, you can see that there are markers in the scriptures that, that reveal covenants. That there, there are two parties, with one of them being the divine witness. There's a prologue that, that deals with past benefits. There are stipulations or rules that are, that are part of the covenant. There, there are sanctions against breaking the covenant. And then it is, it is ratified with, with a sign or an, an oath sign. Again, we're going to see this really throughout the book of Genesis. Theologian Michael Horton refers to covenants as the architectural structure of the scriptures that provide the unity of scripture amid its remarkable variety. So if covenants provide the architectural structure, it is vital that we understand their role here at the beginning of the story, for in this, again, we're going to see the foundation. In fact, we're going to see how they, they point to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. There are, there are really three main groupings of covenants that we're going to be discussing in the, in the course of our study of Genesis. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. First, the, the covenant of redemption is, is it an agreement that is made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit within the Godhead before time. It's, it's a covenant to redeem a people. And then the, the next covenant, the, the covenant of works, includes God's stipulations regarding the Sabbath, marriage, work, and, and of course, not eating from the tree, of the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The covenant of works is essentially, do this and you will live. But that covenant failed there in Genesis 3 because man rebelled. And so apart from God's grace, not just Adam and Eve, are, but, but all are under the penalty of breaking it. The third covenant is the covenant of grace. And, and you can see this covenant of grace all through the Bible. The, the covenant of grace is immeasurably greater than the covenant of works because of, of the terms of the covenant and because of who fulfills the covenant. As Spurgeon says, this covenant was made not with the worthy, but with the unworthy. And, and this covenant is not made upon conditions, but unconditionally. The, every supposed covenant having been fulfilled by our great representative and surety, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a covenant, Spurgeon says, without an if or a but in it. And so we'll see as we look at these covenants how God is really upholding both parts of the covenant. As he see, sends his son to obey in our place and to take the punishment for our covenant breaking. 
We're going to see that there's, there are several iterations of this, the covenant of grace in Genesis, beginning with the, the covenant that God made with Adam, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and later on he reiterates the covenant with Moses, and then with David, and they all point to the new covenant, the new covenant in Christ, the final stage of the covenant of grace. As Earl Blackburn tells us that the covenant of grace exponentially builds and increases and heightens throughout redemptive history until it crescendos in heaven. Beloved, Old Testament believers were saved in exactly the same way as we are saved today. There's only one plan of salvation. And Old Testament believers believed in what God was going to do just as we believe in what he did for us. There was one plan of salvation. God fulfills the obligations and pays the penalty for covenant breakers. Our God is faithful. So coming back for a moment to the architectural metaphor, commentator Kenneth Matthews likens Genesis to an architectural structure of the architectural features of a stained glass window adorning a building. He says, from, from a distance, you can see the, the window holistically, and, and, and you can recognize a scene or a, or a person that's depicted in that window. But, but as you move closer, you can see the intricate design of the, the juxtaposed pieces of glass. You can see how they differ in size and shape and color. And those lines that, that are, are unnoticed from afar, when you move closer, appear to the eye. And so, so we're going to be looking, not just, just afar, looking at from Genesis from afar off, but we're going to, to drill down close and we're going to look carefully and we're going to see the, the lines and the contours within this book. He says that Genesis is, is a complex literary composition with symmetrical unity but a diversity of genres. And again, as we've seen, that although the book is primarily a narrative, it, it contains law and, and prophecy and genealogy. And it's really a, a genealogical record of the people of Israel. It tells the story of God's people, of his elect. And throughout this, this book, God's elect are, are seen to be developing alongside and contrasted with those whom God has rejected. For example, we see, we see Abel accepted, but Cain rejected. We see righteous Noah compared to the wickedness of the rest of the planet. And we see Noah and his family spared and the rest of the world killed. Then out of Noah's sons, we see, we see Shem chosen instead of Ham. Of Abraham's sons, we see Isaac chosen instead of Ishmael. We see Jacob chosen instead of Esau and so on. And so while, while God is providentially preserving some, he is also rejecting others. His, his, his election is, is by grace. It's unconditional. It's not based upon their merit, but entirely upon his sovereign grace. We're going to be seeing throughout that these men like, like Abraham, we, we spoke of earlier, Abraham had a pattern of lying. Yet God redeemed him. Jacob also was a deceiver. But God redeemed him. God made him part of the covenant. On his grace, our God is faithful. The book of Genesis, after the prologue, which, which describes creation, we read, for that, read that for you earlier, Genesis is divided into, into, um, into different 
into ten parts that, that are marked out by the formula, these are the generations of. You see that repeated throughout the book of Genesis. It's the, 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 term, the technical term is, is toledot, which comes from the, the Hebrew word meaning generation. And, and this is repeated 34 times in Genesis. And it really forms a bridge to what takes place next. So just an, an overview. That, that we're First we have the, the toledot of heaven and earth from, from 2.4 to 4.26. We have the Toledot of Abraham from 5.1 to 6.8. The Toledot of, of Noah from 6.9 to 9.29. The, the Toledot of Noah's sons from 10.1 to 11.19. The Toledot of Shem from uh, 11.10 to 26. The Toledot of, of Tira from 11.27 to 25.11. The Toledot of Ishmael from, uh, from 25.12 to 18.00. The Toledot of Isaac from 25.19 to 35.29. The Toledot of Esau from 36.1 to 37.1. And finally, the Toledot of Jacob from 37.2 to 50.26. And so really, that's the whole book of Genesis divided into those ten parts. And so the, the heading, these are the generations of, is followed by a genealogy of that person who's named or, or stories that, that involve his, his notable descendants. For example, in Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. And that describes who Noah was and, and what he did. Or, or in 37-2, these are the generations of, of Joseph. And we see what, what Joseph did. The, the first three of these Toledotes are pre-flood and the last seven post-flood. And, and 1-3 to three and 4-6 to six are parallel. But of particular note is, is the, the two final pairs. Because in those pairs, we see, again, the pattern of, of acceptance and rejection, of, of election and of damnation. And so we can, we can see these. There, there's hints that, that tell us what this, the particular sections are about. We see it in the opening statement. For example, in uh, the, uh, the, the line of Abraham is under the, the Toledot of, of Tira, his father. And we can see that the point in, in uh, the promise to Abraham from Genesis 12, 1 to 3. We can also see the in utero struggle between Jacob and Esau in, in 25, 22, and 23, or, or Joseph's dreams in, in 37, 1 to 11. And, and so there's, they describe us what that section is, is about and will help us and, and provide a framework for us to begin to understand what the authorial intent is of that particular passage. Then there's a transition at the end of each of these sections. And then finally, we see the, the closing section of Genesis, which really provides a transition into the book of Genesis. As the family of, of Israel, of Jacob, who's been renamed Israel, is now living in Egypt. And this then provides a springboard for us to see God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But far more than that, we see God's deliverance of his elect. And in that, we see the storyline of the entire Bible. Again, our God is faithful. There's really three main sections of, of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11, Genesis 12 to 36, and Genesis 37 to 50. And we'll, we'll see these as we, as we go through. Just briefly, Genesis 1 to 11 it, it describes the creation of the heavens and the earth. We see God's covenants here of redemption, of works, and the first two iterations of the covenant of grace, God's covenant with Adam and with Noah. And Genesis 1 to 11 really des describe humanity moving in two opposite directions. First, we see, 
we see the the we see the, the chosen of God in, in, in Adam, even though they, they sin, they, they, are, they are, are brought into covenant relationship with him as, he, as God provides a covering for their sin. But then we also see, so we see, we see Adam and, and his genealogy following after God. But when we see a rejected people, we see, the, we see Cain committing murder, murdering his own brother. And we're going to see that repeatedly, again, in, not only just in these, in these first sections, but, but in the, in really in the, the whole book. Genesis 12 to 36 de- describes Abraham and his seed. And we see, so here, God's covenant is brought into focus w- with Abraham, but, but then it's expanded to all the heavens, uh, sorry, all the families of the earth, who are the, the nations. And again, it's presented by the way of contrasts. Isaac versus Ishmael, and Jacob versus Esau. And Genesis 37 to 50 uh, reveals the, the events surrounding Jacob and his family after they returned to Canaan and, and how God had preserved them in his covenant faithfulness. Now the major focal point of, of this section is the account of Joseph. And, but embedded within that story is, is Judah and Tamar. Now at first, glance, that, at first glance, that story about Judah and Tamar doesn't seem to fit the rest of, of the narrative. It seems with all the focus that's, that's given on, on Joseph, it, it appears at first glance as though, as though he is the one through whom the covenant blessings will come. But that story there in, in, in Genesis 38, dealing with, with Judah and Tamar, and, and it's a shocking story. But it, it shows us that it is actually through Judah, not Joseph, that the covenant blessings come. And Christ comes through the line of Judah. And this really takes us again to the, the key theme of the book of Genesis and really the key theme of the Bible, that, that, that God is faithful and that his faithfulness is most powerfully seen in Christ, that it all points to Christ. And really the whole Bible is about Christ. But without result, resorting to allegory, which really, where, where authorial intent is, is really ignored, and, and every detail is, is meant to, to present Christ. So, so, for example, there's some that would say that the wood of the ark represents the wood of the cross. Now, now that's just that's a fancy. That, that, that really is, has nothing to do with our authorial intent. We can't draw that from the text. But there are many legitimate and biblical ways that, that we can faithfully go from this text to Christ. That we can see Christ in Genesis. We can see Christ in types. In the men who prefigure him. So we see Adam as the federal head who, who represents the human race and, and then in that sense prefigured Christ, the second Adam. We also see Melchizedek who's spoken of extensively in, in Hebrews and, and Melchizedek is, is seen as, as one who is a, a, both a priest and a king and is, and is and unique in that, that he prefigured Christ. And so, so when it comes to these types, we can see that there's a, a very clear New Testament line that is drawn from them to Christ. We, we, we're trying to, to understand what, what God's word means according to what the, the Holy Spirit Human, inspired human author meant the text to mean. We can also see Christ in biblical themes, in God's covenant, in God's kingdom, in, in God's love, in God's faithfulness, in God's judgment, in God's providence, and so on. And, and all of these themes point directly and clearly to Christ. We also have direct New Testament references, such as Jesus' description of the, the, the days of Noah, and repeated references to the, the offspring 
of, of Abraham. Again, these, are, these are, are clear lines to Christ from Genesis. We can also see Christ in the direct fulfillment of promises. He is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. He's in the line of Seth, Genesis 4.25, in the blessing of Shem in 9.26, the blessing for all the families of the earth in Genesis 3, the blessing of, of Isaac's seed in Genesis 26.3, of the promise to Jacob in, in 46.3, and the promise of the kingly rule to Judah in Genesis 49.10. So, so Christ is the direct fulfillment of promises that God has made. So we see the final and full fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. But we can also see Christ in, in the account of, of Genesis that we, where we see redemption history. We, we see that what begins in Genesis is fulfilled in Christ. We, we can trace God's work through redemption that culminates in Christ. And so again, the, the, the first animal sacrifice that provides skins to cover Adam and Eve points to Christ. Again, the seed of the woman that, that crushes the serpent's head, but whose heel is bruised, that points to Christ. Noah's sacrifice after the flood points to Christ. The genealogy from Adam points to Christ. You can see that reflected also in Luke chapter 3. It all points to Christ. We see this in, in, in God's good creation, in the fall, in the plan of redemption, through the seed of the woman, to, to the, the, uh, according to the covenants leading, it all points to the new covenant that we find, the new covenant in Christ, in his blood. He is the ultimate and final fulfillment of, of God's redemption history. He is the one who is the blessing to all the families of, of the earth. He is the hope of elect Israel. Those who are united with him in faith are descendants of Abraham. We here who are, are Gentiles by birth have been grafted in to the line of Abraham through Christ. We here are the elect bride of Christ because our God is faithful. Let's pray together.